0: Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined via the magic of Zoom by my colleague, Peter Kadzis. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Adam. In this episode, you're gonna hear a conversation I had with Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. He is, among other things, the guy who first proposed identifying racism as a public health crisis in the city of Boston, three months before Mayor Marty Walsh actually took that step. We talked about his reaction to the mayor's announcement and what he, Arroyo, wants the city to do next to show that it is serious. But first, Peter Kadzis, there are a whole bunch of big local developments that we haven't been able to talk about yet on the Scrum starting with Governor Charlie Baker's push to create a new licensing system for police around the state. What is your take on Baker's legislation and the response that it's received so far? Well, it's a very important step forward.
1: And I applaud the governor. I applaud everyone who's behind it. I think the uh, uh, Black and Latino Caucus has done yeoman's work. Um, they've been laboring in the shadows, if you will, on issues such as this for a long, long time. And it's taken the the current set of tragedies to bring this issue into the place it really deserves. Um, I suppose I would say that, yes, some form of what I'm generally calling police reform will take place. Um, I'm pretty skeptical about whether it will be adequate enough. Um, I see the um, the power of the police unions as just way too strong. Example number one on the certification board that Baker's proposed—it's uh, a 14-person board made up of, you know, seven half the members. Um, seven of the members would be from the police unions. You know, um, that is not... Let's draw an analogy with civilian control of the military. Now, I know we're, we're supposed to decry the militarization of the police, but let's put that aside for a second. Um, civilians are clearly in control of the United States Armed Forces. I don't think police officers should be denied a seat on the board. They'd have valuable input, but to have it split 7-7, seven, seven? now look, this is going to be amended. It's a long way from being done, but to me, it's an indication that um, the power of the police unions are uh, will still be strong and paramount when this is all over.
0: What do you think about the backlash that we've seen, and our colleague Tori Bedford highlighted this uh, in her report that she did on on a recent demonstration. People saying, you know, this legislation says police are going to be paid to enroll in and and study in racial sensitivity training. And it's ridiculous that we are talking about paying them to do something they should just be doing as a matter of course. Well, I understand the anger and frustration
1: about something like this, Um, that sort of training should be folded into, aggressively folded into the training of new police officers. Um, While I take the point, this, um, this shows the divide between, say, thinking on Beacon Hill and thinking in the streets the police unions don't do anything or do little without being paid for it. I I think if we had to choose between not paying and paying, I think fucking over the money would be a good investment. But um, God knows it's frustrating.
0: There have also been a couple of big Boston developments since we scrummed last. I want to ask you about the story that you worked on with isaiah thompson looking at the disparity in traffic stops how many black people were stopped by boston police compared to how many white people were stopped there was a huge disparity all out of proportion to where the city is demographically and what i was most struck by was the Walsh administration not commenting when this disparity came to light. This is right on the heels of the mayor saying he wants to make Boston a leader when it comes to fighting racism. Uh, What's your take on the data, but also the way the mayor handled it?
1: Well, let's start with the mayor. Um, It came at an inconvenient time. It uh, was the same day he declared, you know, racism uh, a public health emergency in Boston. When the Globe did a follow-up story, some official or a spokesperson said, "You know, we'll be looking into this which is such an easy response to offer, right? This is concerning i i don't I don't read too much into the mayor's non-response it It could have been an opportunity to you know jump forward, but my view of the police union is that um um The mayor may not need their support, per se. He doesn't want their opposition. Um, So from a a, a coolly political point of view, I I, I don't see anything into it. But but let me do a little detour here. If Boston had a real civilian review board, not the sort of um, phantom... You know not the sort of phantom body we have now, if there was a real civilian review board, this would be a perfect item for them to take up you know isaiah 's report um, had been sitting there you know in plain sight on the on, on the, the the police website and it 's interesting that um, city councillor Campbell had been trying to get this information for months and months and months. And the police quietly posted it weeks before, never telling anyone. I don't know what that was about. Geez, they had staged a fairly successful cover-up <laughs> up until then. Um, I don't know what what prompted them to come clean. Um, the, the mechanics of how that information came out is pretty curious. Um, but I think that that what I call curious speaks to the large question mark that hovers over the Boston Police Department and hovers over many police departments. Listen, um, there have been some real improvements um, behind the scenes in the Boston Police Department, especially since those those days, many, many years ago when our colleague at the Boston Phoenix, David Bernstein, won a big national award for demonstrating that the Boston police on a per capita basis had the worst homicide squad in America. You know, D.A. Conley and uh, other people worked behind the scenes to tighten up a lot of investigative procedures. But the problem with the Boston police, and it's indicative of police everywhere, is that since they never admit they have problems when they make progress, it goes unremarked upon because they were perfect to begin with. Listen, Isaiah's story, coming as it did at this time, is just very disturbing. Avid listeners may remember in the last episode, Yao talking about being stopped um, in the South End by the gang unit while he was wearing a jacket and tie, going to some uh, a event. I mean, that was a pretty chilling. That was a a, 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 a chilling little story. Um, Our own Callie Crossley has a commentary up on our website, wgbhnews.org, about when she was a freshman at Wellesley College, being in a uh, a drive-through line at McDonald's with a a fellow freshman, and, you, you know, being hassled by the cops then. These are real problems, and while I'm confident we're going to have a solution of sorts. I don't think it's gonna be a solution that's gonna be as meaningful as it should
0: be. Let me ask you one more Boston Police related question before we get to Ricardo Arroyo. What do you make of Commissioner Grass's decision to meet with the Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr? Uh, And again, I, I hate to keep framing these the same way, but the decision and the mayor's response, which consisted of Decrying the Trump administration, but not calling out his police commissioner for sitting down with uh, the guy who a lot of people see as one of the most problematic figures in the trump administration
1: well, Barr is a problematic figure, and i'll just uh, I'll just revel in my understatement there I think this is a tempest in the teapot, uh, although having said that um, when I listen to the tape of your interview with Ricardo, I thought he was um, uh, clinically very impressive. I I don't want to steal his thunder. He drew some important distinctions, and I'd I'd urge everyone to, you know, stay on board to listen. Gross is an unusual cat. He's, uh, uh, A, he's our first black commissioner. He's something of a law and law the cop. It is in his nature to talk to people. That's one of his great strengths. When I saw, um, when I've seen him on the streets, my God, he seems to know everyone. Um, I don't think Ross can, you know, defy his own nature, which is naturally to talk to people. Um, although I would listen very carefully to what Councilor Arroyo said, because I think there's some wisdom in that.
0: On that note, onto my conversation with Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. I started off asking him about Mayor Walsh's declaration back on June 12th, labeling racism a public health emergency in Boston. What was your reaction when you heard that the mayor was declaring that racism is a public health emergency in the city of Boston?
2: So a mayor staffer called me about an hour before the announcement was made, um, and I think my my, I gotta kind of couch this right. Like one thing is I proposed declaring racism a public health crisis in March, right, and I added something to it because for me, declaring racism a public health crisis was as easy as saying water is wet. I could have passed the resolution in the council in March if I had made it a resolution. If I just wanted that declaration, I could have passed that in March. I purposely didn't do that. What I did was I attached what I was hoping could serve as part of the cure. And it was a systemic cure for a systemic problem. And to break that down in the most simple sense, if you have a system or a process that is consistently creating a result, and what you decide to do is say, I'm going to treat the results, but not change the system that is creating those results, we're wasting a lot of time. Because at the end of the day, that system, unchecked, is going to continue to create racist results, frankly. And if all we're saying is, people are being denied loans, or liquor licenses, or city contracts, or all of these things, and we, we see the racial inequity, but we're not going to change those processes... We're just going to create ways to treat the outcomes and the symptoms. Then we're never getting anywhere. And so I, my creation was an office. I wanted an independent office that would evaluate every policy, similar to the Congressional Budget Office. So if you, if you know anything about the Congressional Budget Office, it gets all of the bills, all of the things that come out of Congress. And it says, this is how much that will cost. It doesn't, it doesn't have any opinion other than that. I wanted a racial equity office for Boston that did the same thing that said, this is the executive order, this is the ordinance coming out of the city council, this is the policy. And that office would look at it, it's independent of the mayor, it's funded through the city, but it's independent of the mayor, and it would say, this thing raises racial inequity. Do with that what you will. But we are a public-facing institution, and we are telling you it raises racial inequity, or it decreases racial inequity, or it has no impact on racial inequity. And so, when he proposed it, it was missing that. And for me... I was happy that we were naming a thing a thing. I don't think you can face things until you name them. And that's why I did that. I think one thing for people to understand isn't that I thought it didn't have any merit. I thought naming racism as a public health crisis for people of color who are so often told, you know, I'm going to speak personally. There's been moments where I've had racist interactions or things have happened to me that I have said that is, that's racist. And somebody has said, well, let's try and think of all the ways in which that could have happened to you, but that don't include racism. Maybe it's because you're young. Maybe it's because they didn't like what you were wearing. Maybe it's because of this. All of these different ways. And I think when you name a thing a thing that's powerful for people who have experienced a feeling, who have experienced that thing, to say, you're not imagining it. We're not going to gaslight you on that. These outcomes are racist. These outcomes are racist because systemic racism is real. And they're real because racism is real and it's a public health crisis. And I thought that was powerful. So that part, I think, is a big deal. But the solution I wasn't very impressed with.
0: Have you had a chance to have a conversation with the mayor since he made that announcement in which you've been able to relate points like what you just made to me?
2: We had a brief conversation in which we kind of spoke about how it rolled out. Um, One thing that I've been very clear, and I think it's as simple as can be, is systemic cures for systemic problems. And the issue for me is, right, he gave he took $12 million from the overtime police budget, but he sent $2 million of that back to BPD. So it's really a $10 million cut from the BPD budget to treat mental health and all these very necessary things. These are all good things. The problem is, if I said to you, how much do you think it would cost just to treat just the trauma and the mental health needs of folks who experience racism in Boston for one year? Is it $10 million? Because it's probably way higher than that. Now, let me add a different thing on top of that. There's also a pandemic, and that pandemic has created all kinds of mental health issues, but it's also ravaged black and brown communities. And so, unless you're dealing with the systems, those one time budget infusion, I don't want to sound callous, but it's not very impressive to me. You know, some people might hear that and they might say, Ricardo, that's why are you belittling $10 million? I'm not. I'm just conscious that we have a $3.5 billion budget it's not enough. These systems create these outcomes. And unless you're going to talk about real systemic change, you're not actually doing anything.
0: Can you just describe in a little greater detail? And I know this is a piece of, of what we're talking about here. The racial equity office that you described that you'd like to see created. Can you just give me an example of how something like that might work and what the metrics would be for assessing what a given proposal or a given development, you know, whatever, whatever it might be, how would you take something happening in the city of Boston and say, okay, this, this is gonna have a positive or a negative impact on racial equity and we'll actually quantify what that impact is?
2: That's a good question because I think for a lot of people, they don't realize that we can actually do that. I, I think for a lot of folks, you know, budget and money makes a lot more sense. You could just calculate that. And so the idea that you could do that for racial impact is maybe some new news, but it's not new. Uh, For a very long time, we've had people who do exactly that. They analyze policies and they say, this is gonna have a disparate outcome. I'll give you an example of one thing that the city of Boston did where this could have been very helpful. We just did a rental relief fund, right? We just set that up. If you had sent that to the Office of uh, Racial Inequity, they would have come back and they probably would have said, well, how many languages are we doing here? Is it a lottery-based system or is it first come, first serve? What are you doing about these other systems? For instance, if it's first come, first serve, do people of color predominantly have the ability to use the internet, to use computers? Do they have those devices? If it's first come, first serve, and you call in and you speak Spanish, and that means somebody has to call you back, how are you saving that person's place in line? Because the city doesn't have the capacity to have that conversation with them right away, but if they spoke English, they would what are the ways in which you're doing that and all of those things can be codified i just gave you one specific example of something we just did here's another one when the ppp came out the program from congress to give the money to businesses immediately upon its outcry we had a bunch of analysts come out and say this is going to just the, the qualifications exclude about 85% of businesses of color and then sure enough it did about that it was, it was i think it was actually a little bit worse right i think it was like 98% of businesses got excluded But we knew that before it got implemented. If they had just had a check on that system, here's what we now shift the conversation to. Hey, guess what? It said there's no racial impact. It has no impact on racial inequity. You might think that's good. I think it should be decreasing racial inequity. So now let's have a conversation about that. Rather than just taking the harm out of things, we can now be talking about and arguing about how we increase the positive outcome of something else. And that's a game changer. When most of our actions at this time are generally trying to stop harm, we can start to be in a place where we can advocate to make things better. And so when I talk about these issues, I talk about them as somebody who was introduced to racism because it happened to me at seven years old, who understands that people who I have loved, personally, family, friends, who I've loved, have lived and died fighting this issue, and we can measure the results and inches. And it's it's a difficult thing to know that you could dedicate your whole life to trying to eradicate a problem that has been with us since the creation of this country, since the creation of the city. And I'm likely going to die. And I can't say to myself that when that happens, I'm definitely going to die just to be right, like I'm, I'm everybody does. But when that happens, I can't say I've eradicated this. Think about a problem that's like that, that you could even say that about. I have faith that one day we're going to have some common sense gun reform. I have faith that we're going to have one day common sense environmental uh, you know, regulations. I can't say that about systemic racism. And I live my life knowing that. And I run into every one of these fights knowing that. And that's a heavy cross. It's something that everybody that you know who is of color feels. And so when we talk about, let's have a conversation, let's talk about this. What about just a little bit more for the symptoms? Maybe now in that context, you can understand why 10 million or declaring a thing a thing doesn't feel very revolutionary, doesn't feel extensive, doesn't feel far enough because the systems are intact.
0: So if the mayor came to you and said... Counselor, you know that I have established this very lofty goal. I've said I want Boston to be a national leader in the fight against racism. Like you, I'm not sure that we can make it go away here in the city of Boston. But I want to do everything I can to fight it as effectively as I can. Uh, I know that you would suggest the creation of this independent office, but what other counsel would you give the mayor?
2: For most politicians, listening isn't hard. That's, that's That's our job. To be perfectly frank, the best politicians you know are excellent listeners, and the ones that you probably like, I don't really know how I feel about them. They're usually not, right? And the reality is, I can I commend him for wanting to listen, for wanting to come to the table, for trying to figure out ways to do this. The power of the mayor is un. It's probably the most powerful position in the entire state. You know, the city council is a check on the budget, but at the end of the day, he gets to go through any school curriculum policy changes that you can think of, any policing changes that you want to think of, up to and including how he deals with leadership. He could do that. And there's no real check from the city council on those things. We can, we can ask for policies and stuff. And so what I would tell him is, anything that you're hearing, and that includes civilian review boards, so like there's issues with policing that people want to see addressed, but contracts, those are city contracts. What are you, what are you doing to change that? What are you, what is the actual thing? If I asked you concretely, what are you doing to change that? What is your answer? And if I asked you what you're doing to change 70% of stops of the black population, the population of Boston for context that is black is 23%. What are you doing to stop that? Because community policing can't be more opportunities for police to touch black and brown bodies. That's not community policing. That's invasive. But there's a number of different things that have been proposed over time and he's heard them and he's seen them and they're not new. And unless you're dealing with the systems, unless you're talking about why are we stopping 70% of our stops, are black folks. Hold that
0: thought for one second, counselor. My daughter is cruising out and I have to tell her to be careful. One sec. <laughs> Go let you do that. Yeah. Um, you got a mask? But I just... All right, good. Mask. Remember to be smart, all right? Yes. Anyway, sorry to interrupt.
2: And it, and what is like the... What do you do with play dates and things like that? Because it is COVID, right? Like where it's supposed to be like... It's a weird thing for me. This is somewhere where I actually very much commend the mayor. Um, You know, he's been he's sounded the alarm about reopening for a little while now. Um, He's been on it since since you could be on it. Um, And I commend him for that because the reality is when we reopen, this is another issue of systemic racism. Right. The people most at risk for harm look like me. They look like our black communities. They look like the essential workers that you see at the grocery stores. I saw you talked about your food delivery situation. They look like that, right? You had a Latino kid who was dropping off your groceries, right, and at the end of the day, when you open up the economy, it does two things. It sends a message that those folks now have to go to work in more numbers. But two, it sends a message to, I'll give you an example, my own mother, her birthday was this week. And it's hard for people who don't totally, we're not having day-to-day conversations about COVID. But you see society reopening up, and so you think that it's okay for you to essentially reopen up, and it's causing these issues with, well, you know, if people want to hold gatherings, if people want to do things, if they want to go hang out with folks, what message are we sending as a state about that? You can say all you want about, you know, be careful and don't do that, but when you're reopening society and telling them, well, it's okay to go eat a meal, or it's okay to go do this, it's really hard for them to figure out why it's okay for them to go spend money, but it's not okay for them to go eat a meal with their family.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you mentioned the, the thing you did about the mayor's stance on, on opening up because a couple of weeks ago, I went back and did a piece looking at sort of what went well in Massachusetts and what didn't go well uh, in terms of the COVID fight. And I was struck going back and reviewing all the things that happened in Boston at the state level. I was struck by how proactive Walsh has been on that. He's been uh, good on that.
2: Yeah, I, th- I would I would comment. am also the chair of public health for folks who don't know on the city council. And so that's actually why racism is a public health crisis. I mean, that's why I fought to be chair of public health. Uh, It was to address racism in all the ways in which it affects folks. And just to be clear uh, on that part, because I don't think I explained the background on this, the Boston Public Health Commission had already determined that racism was the leading driver of inequity in health outcomes. That it addressed, they, they had 26 determinants, what they call the social determinants of health, and it impacted every single one of those things. And so one of the issues that I think, you know, Walsh has really understood is that, you know, societally, we're just not ready to open up. And I think he's also understood it from an economic perspective, which is what I've always argued. You open up too soon, the businesses that have just been able to hold on, and I don't think people totally understand this, to reopen a business, there is a lot of startup cost. Again, you gotta, you gotta reopen your vendor contracts you have to put together your staff again. You got to spend a certain amount of dollars. What happens if in September or, or October, we have to call them back and say, close that all down again? You thought it was bad the first time. Most people aren't coming back from the second. And so, I mean, a lot of people aren't coming back from the first, but I think when you, you hit them with the second, there's a real issue. And the reality is, I think people have kind of lost sight of the fact that we could just as quickly as we had to go into the first, we could have to go into that second fundamentally, nothing has changed. There's no cures, there's no vaccines. Fundamentally, we are in the same place we were in three months ago. The only difference is we have the ability to do testing at a higher rate and people are more socially aware of the fact that this is a thing. And so you got masks, you got different protections that folks are taking, but this could just multiply in a similar way. And and there's really, you know, when we talked about lowering the curve, we talked about lowering the curve in a way where it would extend it. It would extend what was happening. And I think he's been really smart on understanding that the the reality hasn't changed that much. Um, and yet we have economic requirements. I'm sorry, that's Gideon. That's my, that's my Yorkie. And he's a puppy still trying to figure out life. So he's an interesting little guy. Uh, but that's yeah. him barking. Yeah. And sometimes he comes on, sometimes he makes it to the
0: meetings. We have been so big picture here that a part of me doesn't want to close on this this particular note, but I gotta ask you to weigh in on the story that hit um, the day before we're talking here. Uh, Attorney General Bill Barr coming to Boston to meet with Commissioner Gross. I know that on Twitter you were uh, clearly unimpressed by that visit. Uh, uh,
2: yep, that's being nice. <laughs> you know, I was a public defender before this, so this. The world of our criminal justice system is something that I'm very aware of. And I think that somebody like you know, Attorney General Barr uh, shouldn't hold those positions. I mean, somebody like that should have resigned a long time ago. Frankly, he should be walking in shame. There's no world in which anybody should want to be next to him. And I'm going to give the commissioner the benefit of the doubt in the sense that he wanted to have a conversation or he reported that he wanted to have a conversation with him about race and about being a black man in community. But I think when you have somebody like, like Attorney General Barr, this was for him an opportunity to take a photo with a black police commissioner. It was not for him an opportunity to learn from Commissioner Gross. I don't believe that he came here to learn because I see what he does on a daily basis. And so I, my issue with it is it's using our city, our commissioner, as a photo op and an opportunity to try and get some positive press. And the reality is, nothing about that man is positive. I just, for me, it enraged me because we still have children in cages. We still have all of these different issues that are happening on a daily basis to deal with systemic racism, to have somebody who is a highly, and I'm just going to say it, this is a white supremacist administration. People like that don't deserve to be given legitimacy they don't deserve to be granted that sense of legitimacy i'll use his title he has it but do i think he's upheld that office has he done the things he's supposed to do no and i don't think he's at a point where you know at this point you see us in court if you're going to see us anywhere and for me anybody who works to uphold those kinds of systems needs to go <laughs> i don't have a i don't have any i talked about systems this whole conversation you're talking about the heads of some of the worst systems that we have right now. Uh, it was disappointing. It hurt. It actually hurt to see that photo because, you know, that the reality is he's using Boston as a backdrop. He's essentially saying, look, in Boston, this is what we can do. And I don't think he should have been given that opportunity to do that. He has no business being in it. And so that's just where I was on that. And you can hear Gideon. He, he's similarly charged up.
0: Counselor Ricardo Arroyo, thank you for taking the time to talk with me.
2: I I appreciate it, and I hope you have me back. I'm a big fan.
0: Peter, I should note for you and for our listeners that I think the counselor was genuinely bummed out that you were not part of that interview. One of the things he said to me, he he says he's a regular listener, which is terrific, and he also said he wanted to get a chance to watch you smoke your pipe. So (laughs) I I told him that we would do it again down the road. Well, you know, I'm flattered by that. Counselor
1: Arroyo is from a distinguished political family that I think appreciates a touch of eccentricity, so I will take that as a compliment.
0: That is gonna do it for another installment of the Scrum. Thanks to Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo for joining us. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum, rate us, talk back to us. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org, or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. And Peter, you are? At
1: Cadzis. K-A-D-Z-I-S.
0: We'll talk to you again in a week or so. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.